Good morning and welcome to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio from thesyncbook.com. As usual, every Tuesday morning we are here. Today is uh, the 16th of July, 2013. My name is Will Morgan and guest hosting, guest hosting with me today is William Klaus. How are you today, Bill? Doing good. Thanks for having me back. Today we are going to interview a total dickhead. <laughs> so, Bill? David Gill. Yeah, David Gill uh, <laughs> writes a blog spot t- uh, titled Total Dickhead, and if you can't figure it out, it's a website dedicated to the news, analysis, and Philip K. Dick-related info, Kipple, chronicled by a PKD scholar. Uh, David is also a co-creator and editor of a fiction website called Probic, uh, something he founded with his friend uh, Nathan J. Miller. Um, and for those who are not as completely immersed in the world of Philip K. Dick, can you explain just exactly what Kipple is? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's uh, from a book called The Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It's actually kind of a long, involved concept. Um, the idea is uh, comes from a joke. Uh, one guy says to another, uh, uh, do you enjoy Kipling? And the uh, guy says, oh, I don't know, I've never Kippled. And, of course, the joke's <laughs> about, you know, do you like Rudyard Kipling's literary works? And uh, the joke is, you know, since the guy doesn't know who Kipling is, he responds, Kippled. But uh, Kipple is, uh, in Dick's world, uh, a kind of uh, a kind of entropy uh, that that uh, manifests itself everywhere. So everything is always constantly running down and falling apart. And and this is and this is given the the voice of Kipple. So uh, Kipple is like uh, when your when your desk is is uh, is messy, you know, and that mess just keeps on edging closer and closer out into the room. You know, it's growing all the time. I think uh, one of the lines in the book is that uh, the kipple can never be be stopped. It can it can only be really pushed back in places temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, but but if you if go back to that joke again, and what you're seeing is a, is is one of Dick's more profound ideas. Uh, you know, the, the the thing that makes something worthless is the fact that it has no. Uh, uh, sort of social currency that binds us together. Uh, the thing about Kipple is that it's it's addressing uh, um, uh, some, a social something that binds us together uh, that's broken, uh, that's no longer binding us together. It's now individualized. Um, it's kind of complicated to understand, but uh, the, the the idea is is really important that that Kipple is Kipple because it's individual, because there's nothing that's pulling us together as a group of people or as, a, as more than just a single individual. Uh, so kipple, which is uh, aligned with another word, gubble, uh, is, a, is a kind of uh, schizophrenic withdrawal from the world uh, that's, uh, that's pretty profound. It's, uh, I, you got me right with that first question. It's a good one. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really crucial key concept to Dick's work, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct in that. Uh, but you brought up uh, uh, an element of Kipple, which I hadn't considered, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot right here, but 
um, the the idea that Kipple is individual is yeah is, is that notion that it is is completely separate and that it's almost lost to uh, the cosmos in any way? Is it like Hopeless. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's lost to the cosmos in the sense that it's locked up in the individual by himself. So, for instance, if you think about like something like for whom the bell tolls, like that as a phrase means something to us because we have uh, a, a, a shared uh, um, understanding of, of art and culture um, that that makes that mean something. So it either means, you know, we're talking about John Donne or we're talking about Hemingway or we're talking about Metallica riffing on those two guys uh, for whom the bell tolls mean something. Now, uh, if it only means something to me, in other words, if I'm the only one that has any referent, frame of reference for that set of words, then there's a there's something different now. There's it's, that's a different kind of knowledge than uh, if everybody shares this thing. So uh, I think the, the the thing that I wanted to say is that Kipple is not so much individualized as it is schizophrenic, as it is locked away from the rest of the of uh, of, of humanity because it's uh, it's an idiosyncratic uh, uh, perception. So I know that uh, Time Out of Joint is a, a novel that is particularly important to you. Yeah, I wrote my master's thesis on it. I guess it would be important. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Understatement. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a side note, do you make? I'm, I'm not aware. Is that available at Total Dickhead or any, anywhere? Uh, actually, it is. It's available uh, if you search, uh, if you go to Google and just search Philip K. Dick Delusions of Grandeur, uh, <laughs> Google will take you to my, uh, to academia, academic edu or something. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a website where you can post uh, papers. And my thesis is up, it's available to be read there. I just don't know the address. But again, if you Google, you know, Philip K. Dick, Delusions of Grandeur, which was the title of the thesis, uh, my idea was uh, to look at narcissism in Dick's work that uh, in a lot of these works, there's like one uh, protagonist that's like breaking into a, a, a previously undiscovered world. And one of the things that I, that I sort of figured out about it was that every time these these protagonists discover these new worlds, they're suddenly more important. The protagonist is more important, not the world. And right. so uh, it, it's a really interesting uh, um, development um, because... They're, they're all the same story in a lot of ways. It's somebody... Yeah, there's... The, yeah, it's... It, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Dick. Dick, uh, uh, I think, had a kind of uh, a vision, a, a kind of a moral vision for what he wanted to do in his work. And uh, unfortunately, he didn't. He the 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 professional aspects of the work were uh, were so demanding that you know he really only wrote two drafts of each book. So one way of of thinking of his whole uh, output is as of a kind of meta novel. Uh, a, a novel that he's continually revisiting and rather than revising over and over and just sort of adding to and, and changing. So I, I agree. There's, 
there's there's an important story that happens over and over again and and the central one of the central commonalities of that story is that this new reality is uh it makes the person more important now the genius that dick had when he was dealing with this was was to it adds a lot of tension to the novel because first of all you have this this character who's discovering this new world where they're suddenly more important. The interesting thing is that that's a really common symptom among people who are, are going crazy, is that they feel like they are more important. That's part of paranoia, you know, that, that right. you are more, you are important enough to generate this, this group of people that are going to be coming after you. Right. Uh, so um, it's, a really interesting place to look at Dick's work because he's, he's he kind of makes it a double-edged sword. Like, is this guy stumbling into a new world, or is this guy going crazy and stumbling into his own world, which is is fundamentally different from what people around him are seeing? How do you see that uh, relating to his own experiences when he later in life? <laughs> well, I, you know, it's hard to talk about Dick's own experiences without. Uh, a whole bunch of asterisks, you know, we don't really know <laughs> what his experiences were. Um, you know, I've been studying the guy for about 20 years. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. Uh, I'm not a woo woo, uh, out there person, uh, but there's something that I feel like something did happen to the guy. Uh, as, as, and I'll tell you the evidence for that is that, um, this, in, in 1974, Dick's life changed, and, and I'm, I'm reluctant to say that he saw God, uh, but that's what maybe he would tell you. He would, he, we would probably put his hands in the air and say he had a quote-unquote mystical experience, right. uh, which I think is a, probably a pretty good way to talk about it. Um, something transcendent happened to the guy, and it, and it ended up making him happier uh, more well-adjusted and uh, generated three of the, his best, most interesting religious works, his, his final three books. So from my perspective, it was a profoundly positive experience, but it was one that Dick grappled with for, for his whole life. So if you don't know, after Dick's, you know, quote-unquote saw God in 1974, he spent the remaining eight years of his life writing about the experience and trying to put some sort of uh, label on it, you know, try to figure out what happened. And uh, last, uh, I guess it was two summers ago, we got the opportunity to go through all of those notes and produce the exegesis, which is a, a thousand-page book that uh, Hofton Mifflin put out that's uh, it's a real mind-bender. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that I think as it was coming out, people were imagining that this would have the secrets of the universe in it, you know, that this would be Dick's, uh, you know, mentations on mentation. It would be his thinking about thinking. It would be his, his, his opus. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, it's a, it's a, the journal of a crazy person, uh, right. which is something to think about. Uh, and in, in another set of ways, it's really just some pretty fundamental Christian, theologian, you know, theologian, you know, thinking about religion and, and right. specifically thinking about, you know, how, why we suffer in the presence of God. Um, so, you know, it's a really weird book and it's a really weird uh, experience for a guy to have and to, to set down. But to, to kind of get to your question, yeah, Dick's, I think, fear was that he was crazy. 
and that his what that what he was perceiving wasn't actually happening. I think that was a a, a terribly terrifying idea for him. And yet I think at the same time there was something genuinely uh, fascinating and exciting about thinking about himself as being in touch with God. Again, there's a delusion of grandeur involved with this, uh, the, you know, when, the, when, when God, if talking to God is not a delusion of grandeur, but God talking to you <laughs> certainly is, because now you're suddenly the most important guy. You're the one person that God has decided he's going to reveal himself to. So, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing about that book, uh, The Exegesis, is that in it you can see Dick being completely skeptical, saying maybe I'm absolutely full of it. I have no idea what I'm talking about, and I could just be completely seduced by this idea that I'm, I'm in contact with something. And, and then at the same, then he can turn three pages and be, and, and be completely immersed in the belief that something transcendent happened to him. So uh, again, we're talking about a guy who was afraid that what he was perceiving wasn't in line with what other people were perceiving. Uh, but he's also a writer, an artist who's uh, really did, determined to tell us that that collective vision is something that is really important and positive and uh, and central to uh, a, a, a positive social environment. So like one of the things that's problematic is the way in which technology pulls us out, right? If I'm, if I'm uh, flipping through my iPhone, right, while my kid is... Uh, discovering, you know, uh, a particular uh, fish in a museum, let's say. You know, think about the way that I've stepped out of reality uh, completely. You know, I'm in, I'm in this virtual reality. I'm on Facebook or I'm checking my email or whatever. And my kid, you know, is in this real reality with fish and, and science and, and uh, nature and all of that. And, uh, so, you know, Dick's notion of parallel worlds is borne out. You see it every time you, somebody's got an earbuds in, you know, you're, they're, in, they're in their personal private universe and, uh, and we're not there with them anymore. And, uh, you know, the, you can make the argument that's, uh, that's the early stages of schizophrenia, you know, tattering at, the, uh, at our culture. Well, the thing that amazes me, so I went back recently and read We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. Yeah, sure, the book they made, this this very short story they made Total Recall out of. Yeah, twice. But mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> such a short story, and there's two movies yeah. off of it, it's funny to me. But that was that was a reportedly written in 66, which, sure. which would have been almost a decade before his religious experience. And, of course, if people know the experience that he had started when he was on sodium pentothal after he got his wisdom teeth out. Well, that's, the, that's his story. Now, if you think about it, one of the things you've got to remember about Dick is he's an artist. So even right. the things that he talks about his own life are embellished in a way that makes them art. You can't really trust him. That is true. No, and the fact of the matter is nobody's getting their wisdom teeth. He wasn't getting his wisdom teeth worked on at 40 years old. <laughs> that, but he did have what he considered to be a Gnostic experience that involved some sort of divine wisdom. And so it, it then becomes a fiction in his life, and he connects it to this wisdom tooth. I talked to his wife, Tessa, and she told me, 
uh, it wasn't a wisdom tooth. It was just a, it was just a, a you know, an infected molar or something, impacted or right. something like that. So the, uh, the overall, if he was on sodium pentothal, do you believe that to be true? I, I believe that there was a woman that came to his door to deliver drugs and that he saw something in her necklace and yeah, that it set off some sort of experience. But you know, I'm, I'm, sodium I'm pentothal very... is used in that story, which is what got yeah. started. That, that's what oh, gave, that's interesting. That's what gave the character Total Recall. I specifically ah, well, now that's a, now there's an instance where uh, Dick could consciously be. Uh, one of the things that he's so brilliant at is that, in, and occasionally in his BS, uh, his fictive narrative lines uh, work to uh, em- uh, empower, emphasize, point out similarities to his his work. You know, so again, it's like there's the, there are these moments in the exegesis and Dick's uh, uh, sort of thought process about what had happened where he goes, aha, I had it all along. I always knew the truth, even when I didn't know I knew the truth. <laughs> and um, that's uh, a delusion of grandeur that, I, that uh, to me, is so, is so powerful. It's such an intense um, empowering of the individual that I'm very skeptical of it. Uh, and you know, there's there's the other story that he, uh, you know, that he suddenly knew that his son had an undiagnosed birth defect. The biographical background stuff just doesn't hold up to the to the idea that Dick diagnosed his son with a hernia and took him to the hospital and had it fixed. It's more like they kind of knew that something was going on, and so they took it to the doctor and got it fixed. Uh, you know, but then in, in the retellings. Uh, uh, Dick was just such a, a great artist. I just don't think he could resist. And I've talked to a few people who've suggested that this was a, 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 con- a, a part of being a beat, which was sort of Dick's first literary identity, a beat in the 50s, a beatnik. Um, right. You know, it may be that, uh, that, that that really was part of his, his identity, that he just felt obligated to embellish to change to, to to never tell the story straight because a straight what's the point of a straight story do you think that uh to understand what's going on with philip k dick one either has to be raised christian <laughs> uh, and if you're not raised christian i don't know how you'd ever have that kind of connection with christianity but do you think that that is an essential component to unraveling this mystery if it's going to uh, convey something of greater importance. Because uh, if it doesn't re- depend on Christianity, then you can yeah. just go the mental illness route, and everyone has their own sort of understanding of what madness is. Do you think it's one or the other or somewhere in between? I think it's probably somewhere in between. It's a really good question. I, um, I, I, don't, I think that there's a way to interface with Dick's experience that doesn't that you – do, you don't have to go quite so – "Quote unquote Christian," you know. There is this, there is this sort of thing about the, uh, the 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 Messiah, and you know, in the books, the Messiah is this child from another planet, and this and that. Uh, but if you really think about it as just love, as as empathy, as what Dick is telling us is, you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of another person, which, ironically or coincidentally, is what Jesus was telling us. So in that regard, it's a Christian message, but uh, but I'm not a Christian, and I've 
and I have and I have benefited profoundly from from Dick's uh, religious work insofar as it has taught me to uh, connect to the people around me and to and to understand that what's real for them is what's real. You know what I mean? Like we tend to put our own reality uh, front and center. And we tend to really uh, uh, focus on that. But but Dick's work is is telling us that other people's importance or reality is important. That we have to really stretch out and understand what they're going through. And so, so uh, just to, to focus in on that. Oh, sorry. If you have more to go. Go ahead. No, ahead. Go ahead. Uh, just to focus in on that word love, I think that what is at the core of this experience that Philip K. Dick has and has had throughout his life is the love of God. And if that's related to um, sort of like a Christian Messiah type love for God, that's a love so strong that one would walk willingly towards their own death. Correct? Yeah. I mean, that's always been really confusing to me. If, if, if God is so great, you know, why, why, why aren't people in a hurry to meet him? Uh, that, that's, that's always been a really interesting, uh, disconnect but uh i think that uh again it's a it's a special kind of love it's this empathy and if you you know if you read freud uh, i one of the things i did with my master's thesis is i read freud's uh, essay on narcissism which is a pretty fascinating piece of of work uh, of freud's and basically the argument is that narcissism this intense self-love um, is is present in every person, and it's it's something that keeps us. Uh, it, it it protects us, you know. It, we we feel that we're important, so we don't uh, throw ourselves down elevator shafts or whatever. You know, this is something that uh, that keeps us alive. Um, but the the there's a point I want to make that's kind of complicated. But the, take your time. A, you got 42 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> There's a there's a way in which uh, empathetic love uh, connects us because it asks us to understand what's important to another person. So, for instance, uh, if if you watch Fox News and I watch NBC, you could make the argument that we exist in two different realities. You know that uh, that our our belief systems and what we're being told is such that we we really don't share a reality. Uh, and, and for example, uh, in in one person's reality, let's say uh, George Zimmerman is uh, is guilty of uh, of 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 callously killing a young black man. In another reality. George Zimmerman was simply protecting himself from a black kid that was was beating him up. So these the way we see the world um, becomes a kind of truth for us that uh, is really important to respect. You know, you, you you have to get to where other people's truth is and understand that. So you know, in Dick's work, these characters are constantly falling into these, these private hells, these endless solipsistic existences. 
And the reason that he's telling the reason that that's happening is because it's providing contrast to what should really be happening in life, which is that we should be talking and caring and interested and focused and engaged and developing our energy. I mean, one of the things that Freud says is that what turns parent narcissism into paranoia is withdrawal. You know, if you spend a bunch of time and, and effort in your life relating to people, then you stop relating to people. Freud's thesis is, well, something has to happen with that energy that you were spending. What happens to that energy? Freud says, we spend it on ourselves. We spend it then, if we take away, if we pull ourselves out of society, the energy we would have spent interacting with society is now spent making us important in our own minds. (laughs) So that's why, you know, when the crazy guy on the corner is screaming about the CIA being after him, uh, there's there's a there's a commonality of insanity that's involved in this guy suddenly thinking that he's so important. You know, I mean, it, it'd be wonderful if I was really important, you know, and you guys couldn't live without talking to me uh, er, every day, or you know, we we did we we couldn't stop doing this radio show or whatever. But that's not the reality, you know. If, if you couldn't get in touch with me, you would have called somebody else. You know, well, we, we can aren't have that you back important. On if you want, I mean. <laughs> Well, we're well, not that important, you know. We're, we, we, a lot. This makes me, you're talking about two different viewpoints and how you can bounce between the two, kind of. Well, and I think that's what Dick is kind of telling us. I mean, how do you identify these two viewpoints that I'm talking about? What, what, what do you think they are? Well, one, like I said, it has to do with Martian time slip. Okay. <laughs> it will, it, and, you know, the boy Manny... Yeah, they go inside him, and everybody has a nasty face, and everything goes wrong, and and then yeah. Well, when what he sees, what what the what the boy tends to see, uh, he's he's uh, it's interesting. Um, Dick had a friend in the uh, '60s and '50s who had an autistic son, and uh, you know I wasn't as common then, and it, I think it was pretty prof- profoundly affected Dick, and of course at the time all of the theories were that autism was caused by uh, insufficient uh, uh, affection from the mother, which if you know anything about Dick's mom is going to strike a nerve with him because I've been reading a lot about this woman and she expressed no emotion. Uh, Dick was never allowed to express emotion as a child. If he, if he was going to have a violent outburst, he was forced to go in his room and have a violent outburst. So, um, there's this way in which emotion is forbidden and it's uh and it's like a dangerous bad thing and then there's dick in his work telling us that that's just not the case that that emotion is what will save us you know really feeling something for somebody else is what will rescue us from that uh despair that individual existential despair that nothing matters and nothing means anything so to shift gears a little bit, I've talked mm-hmm. to Bill about this, who's in a pretty big dickhead himself. And <laughs> the thing is, is um, I kind of see all Philip K. Dick movies in Hollywood as being yeah. mother goose flicks. Like, they're all kind of semi-related. What do you think the obsession Hollywood has with Dick, where, do you, where does that come from? Well, it comes from just being safe with a money bet. You know, I mean, it's it's like if 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 uh, you know 
if the two guys in front of you in line both hit the jackpot on the lottery, it's a lot more tempting to get a lottery ticket. You know, I mean, I think Blade Runner. I think I think that's really what we're talking about. Blade Runner was an incredibly successful film. Uh, not not financially at first. I, who knows what it, what what it's ended up at now? But it's become a cult phenomenon, and people have begrudgingly recognized that it's a really good movie. And at the same time, it's a it's a it is not true to Dick's notion of what do androids dream of electric sheep is about. In that book, the focus is on how crummy people are. You know, how android-like we can become in routine, following money. I mean, in that book, the guy has to kill these androids that look exactly like everybody else uh, in, in order to earn money, you know, quite a bit of money. And so he constantly is talking about, oh, I just got to do this, and then I get this money. And so he's kind of a reflex machine. He, he's, he has this input. He has to do output, so he's going to do it. It becomes an unthinking equation. And uh, in the movie, Blade Runner, it's really about how amazingly human these androids can be. Like being a human is a great thing. So um, on the one hand, Blade Runner fails miserably to communicate Dick's messages accurately. On the other hand, it's like that covers, like uh, the Devo's cover of The Rolling Stones' Can't Get No Satisfaction somehow in twisting the original vision, uh, it's more in line with, uh, with its original intent, maybe. Um, so anyway, Blade Runner is successful and Hollywood knows it. And I think that they've tried over and over again to make another Blade Runner. Uh, the problem is that the uh, Hollywood formula, which involves you know action, car chases, uh, big movie stars. It just uh, they they keep trying to graft Dick's ideas into uh, Hollywood's pre-packaged entertainment uh, conglomerates, you know. And uh, I just don't think it works. And I and I want to make an even more fundamental point, which is what is with our culture that somehow thinks that if a book is in any way successful, it has to be a movie, and that at that point, the movie is the expression of what that book is supposed to be like. I mean, we're getting that now with the with the hype for Ender's Game that's going to be coming yeah. out. Uh, you know, I mean, it, well, why is it in our culture that the greatest aspiration a book could ever possibly have is to become a movie? That's just silly. I mean, and, and, and I think that that's one thing that's really made Dick's work uh, I think it's really taken away from it because in, in the Hollywood that Dick gives us is sanitized and uh, and really misses the point uh, in, in, a, in a really a fundamental way because uh, it's not about the jetpacks or the cars or even the ideas. It's about the connection of these characters. And if you don't see that, which Hollywood doesn't particularly privilege in these films, uh, the, the, for me, the emotional power of the story is lost. So uh, there's the, I, the way I read it is like, uh, you know, these little kids rubbing their hands together, you know, now we've got it. Now we finally got the adaptation that's going to make us a gazillion dollars. And, and uh, you know, then they hype it and uh, from the mind of Philip K. Dick, the man who's brought you Blade Runner. And, 
you know, they, they hype it up. And, and the danger is that if you, you know, who wants to go see a Philip K. Dick movie if in your mind what you think of is Paycheck with Ben Affleck or, oh, man, or that... Next with Nick Cage? Right. I mean, those those movies were terrible. Uh, you know, and, and, and the... Car and yeah, exactly, and and a misunderstanding and a trivializing of of this. There are a couple of movies where they have not trivialized Dick's thematic interests, and those are Blade Runner, Scanner Darkly, and the new Radio Free Album Youth. Those are the three movies where Hollywood uh, either stays away or, or or steers clear, and Dick's vision is intact. Uh, but too often, it's it's easy. You know, he wrote them over 150 short stories, and uh, at one point, each one of those was a million dollar option. You know, that 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 there were Hollywood people interested probably in every one of those stories, Scrambling. and that's a lot of money for people uh, for Dick's you know kids who it's an interesting story. He didn't get you know didn't see him a lot during his lifetime. He was a tortured artist. He wasn't a great dad. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, Posthumously, but I, but I, you know, I'm I'm skeptical about the movies, and I and I want to make it clear that I, I just don't think it's the greatest thing a movie can ever do is become a, a book can ever do is become a movie. I think there's a, a lot of books that are just really really good books. <laughs> I think uh, Blade Runner is a great uh, movie to bring it back to uh, narcissism. Uh, yes. real quick is because I think Philip K. Dick's most narcissistic act in his entire life is the action that preserved and maintained that his, like I like to call it gospel um, novels were, were finished and completed. Uh, uh, when he was offered the $400,000 yeah, rewrite yeah. and stifled yeah. Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, and instead, yeah, not only to rewrite it, but then to bury the original, to basically. To bury the original, right? Yeah. And so instead he took 12000 in yeah. the migration of Timothy Archer. And yeah, that is a really key... That That's not something that Dick... That's not a choice that Dick would have made early in his career. That's a, that's a post-1974 Dick. It's got his priorities in line. And I would I would argue that that was a, a, a true triumph of his of his abilities because... Transmigration of Timothy Archer is a really important book, primarily because it's the one book written in first person from a female's perspective that does that's great. Dick had constant problems writing women throughout his career. He's got issues with women. He's got issues with his mom, and they came out in the book. And so there's one book where he's got a well-rounded, real woman character, and it's at that it's his last book. And it's a book that yeah, you turned down a lot of money to write. So there's it's a I think it's a true it's a kind of a beautiful story, and I really like that part of this. That's a that's a nice chapter in his life. But can someone interpret that also into an inherently narcissistic um, decision? Because Blade Runner hadn't been released officially; it hadn't gone yeah. on to any success, and he essentially mortgaged his future by turning down. I mean, he essentially turned down millions of dollars. In value. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he would did. have been set for life. And well, I imagine he, he, at that had... point, he was doing much better. Now, the, the interesting thing is that the last 10 years of Dick's life, well, not the last 10, maybe the last five, he really did see an uptick in his finances for the first time. 
So uh, it's possible that uh, it's not like he was eating horse meat when he turned down the four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I feel, like I feel there was per- a sly little horse lover fat comment right there. But oh well, on. yeah, and you know that it's that. Uh, well, famously, the the story goes that when he was struggling as a writer with his first, or I guess really his second wife, that they would go to the Lucky Dog Pet Food Store <laughs> on uh, San Pablo Avenue in Berkeley and buy horse meat. <laughs> and you know, secretly it was for them to eat. You know, so no, they're, they're, and that does go to horse lover fat and that whole thing. Every all, it's all connected. Which is one of the things that makes writing a book about Philip K. Dick so difficult because it doesn't want to break itself into these different chapters. It all wants to be this great big gestalt of information. You know, which is I just I just see that there the movies are kind of connected in a way not only do they share some of the same actors but there's always the brunette who changes his world and so forth yeah so yeah i know i mean it's it, 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 somebody could write a really good thesis on wh- whatever it is that is that the the, the homogenizing forces in, in the cinematic adaptation of dick you know like yeah. why is it that every one of these is going to have like this weird mechanical taxi driver that's going to turn right. and, you know, say, where would you like to go, sir? I mean, it, it, it's, uh, there are these very odd similarities. And, and if you know Dick's work, that's a kind of, that they, they, they share that in that there are these weird things that pop up in every book, you know, the, the, the twin or the, right. uh, the dark haired girl or, uh, or the, the, or the revealed wisdom, you know, we were talking about Dick's experience in 1974. He claims to have had religious experiences that were a lot earlier than that. Uh, one that's interesting to me is he was in, I believe, either high school or taking some college courses, and he, had a, he was in a, in a difficult test that he had sat down to, and he had studied the wrong material, and he kind of went into a panic. It was a math test. And in his mind, he suddenly heard this very calm, what he called AI voice. Just giving him the answers, right? And that you know that was that was a that was Dick living in Berkeley, uh, where probably everybody around him was a dedicated uh, uh, skeptic and uh, atheist, you know. And he would tell people that he you know he had those experiences where he'd wake up in the middle of the night and see himself standing at the side of the bed looking. So, you know, he was a a guy that had sort of what we might call paranormal experiences. for his whole life. And um, another interesting point is he, he had a, a, an interest in religion early on. Uh, he and his wife, Cleo, would go to a church in Berkeley where they spoke in tongues. And now, oh, I'm not saying that he was there to oh, speak in tongues, but I think that he found, they, they, they found religion interesting in a way uh, that, that frankly, people don't find religion interesting anymore. I mean, there's such a... Uh, one of the interesting things about Dick is that his... As a postmodern critic of media culture, he has been proven right. He's sort of the golden boy of dystopian now, you know. He really put his finger on it. But his religious leanings were so uh, unique. I mean, think of... A, a, Aside from L. Ron Hubbard, is there another science fiction writer who had profound religious experiences? I mean, I don't even think L. Ron Hubbard had profound religious experiences. He just created a religion. All right, um, I hate to be a dick. I don't mean to be a dick, but of course, we're we're going to have to talk a little bit about your own work because our time is running out. Oh right boy, now. okay. 
So go ahead and please describe a little bit more of things that individuals can find about you and where they can find it. Oh, absolutely. Well, my my interest in Dick's writing, uh, um, you know, eventually pushed me to try to to, to my own hand at science fiction. Uh, so I've written some some short stories that are they're out there. You, you can you can find them by googling David Gill and so forth. Um, I, I also started a magazine uh, with a friend of mine, sort of a zine called Pravic, uh, PravicMagazine.com, and we are uh, we are committed to doing. Uh, 12 issues of uh, fiction, so we are accepting submissions, and uh, we've run. We're on our issue, our third issue. We've run stories from Rudy Rucker and my old mentor Robert Onapa, and uh, stories by me, and uh, some submissions that we've gotten. Uh, we're really into uh, science fiction that has a very human element. It's not about the a two four six seven brand new windshield wipers that don't allow any water to touch your windshield. I mean, <laughs> not interested in what the technology of the future is going to be. I'm Dick wasn't in either. What, that's kind of because I mean, yeah, Dick would that's just where say, I got it. You know, people always car. say Dick was this great pr- predictor of stuff. He really wasn't. He was really just a really good student of human nature, and he just saw how screwed up we are, and he could extrapolate that. Like, okay, if we're screwed up in this way, think about how we'll be screwed up in that way, you know? <laughs> and so um, he, he really had a, he had a way of diagnosing where we're at, but now we're, we're back to Dick. Uh, um, <laughs> but again, that is, that, that's my, my interest is in a, as an artist is in being a kind of moral voice like Dick to, to try and say, like, the future is not going to be great, gang. Science fiction is not a place to read about rocket ships. It's a place to learn how we're going to, um, you know, make do with the with the world that we're, we're inheriting. You know what I mean? Uh, the what's interesting, and I think this is really fascinating. Think about this. In terms of science fiction, almost anything is possible. We could. We we are we are just beginning interstellar travel. We are just we we just sent a a. a a, a satellite out of our solar system. I mean, it took decades, but that Voyager is out of there now. Um, we uh, we could live forever. It's possible that there are biological uh, uh, revolutions just down the road that could make human beings immortal, right? Uh, there's the possibility of uh, thinking machines. There's the possibility that machines could make us smarter, right? Now, in this world where all those things are possible, the politics are so screwed up that none of those things are happening. Instead, what's happening is we're languishing on a rapidly warming world uh, where it's not looking good for us. There's this huge pile of plastics in the ocean, uh, pollution, you know, uh, the odds are stacked against us. So Dick's futures really address the sort of emergency of our now. In other words, how do we get out of this? How do we fix this mess that we're in? And there is a message there. The message is we've got to wake up. We've got to get together. We've got to recognize that our collective existence is more important than our individualized existence. And, you know, we need to just connect and be real and, you know, have everybody's reality be real to us. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's, um, it's what I've gotten from reading Dick for 25 years. And, well, and it's, thank you. it's really made a difference in my life, you know. Like, uh, it's helped me 
connect in, in a way that's allowed me to have a successful marriage. Uh, it's allowed me to have uh, kids and, and uh, you know, as a, as, a work, as a teacher and all that stuff. It's really changed my life, and I, and I, and I, want, I want it to change other people's lives, too. Well, thank you, David, for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been a blast. And thank Thanks, you, man. thank you, listener. Uh, you've been listening to David Geel for 42 minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Uh, for more information about the SyncBook, our guest, or to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure to visit our website at thesyncbook.com backslash 42 minutes. If you would like to uh, or like what you hear and would like to support the show, by all means, follow the link on the website and donate or to the donate page. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Thank you and have a wonderful Tuesday.